0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Following Lydia Yuknovich's seminar, Let the Pieces Fall Where They May, there was a free reception and reading. Lydia was here as part of Lighthouse's 2015 Visiting Author Series, and she read that evening from her latest novel, The Small Backs of Children.
1: so excited to have Lydia Jugnovich here today, Um, and I thought as as a way of introducing, there are so many good quotes on the back of your book, your books, we have three of them here, we have Dora, a head case, we have one that a lot of you have read, The Chronology of Water, and the one I'm reading right now, in case you guys were wondering what I was reading, The Small backs of Children, and um, the one that really caught my eye was Karen Carbo who said it's dirty, sexy, rude, smart, soulful, fresh, and risky. I thought, wow, that's a bunch of stuff I want to read. <laughs> this woman, I've, I've had lunch with her. We had tacos. And once you've had tacos with someone, you really see into their soul.
2: <laughs>
1: and this is a good person. She's an incredible writer. She's an incredible teacher. A lot of us felt schooled in the best way today. Um, And we're so thrilled to have her here to share more of her words and, and wisdom. Please give it up for Lydia Yuknovich.
3: So thank you. You have to give another round of applause for Andrea. She's so amazing. What a gem person. I feel really lucky and I got the taco treatment. <laughs> and amazing stories <laughs> that shall not be repeated. <laughs> and but I also want to thank all of you for coming here tonight. Um it's lonely being a writer. Raise your hand if you're a writer. What is that? <laughs> it's like swimming. Today. Okay. Yes, small victories. <laughs> um, it's lonely. And when you, you hope there are readers out there, and you hope you're making a little bridge to a few readers, but when you give readings, I'm in a room with other mammals. And it's really meaningful to me, so thank you for showing up. Even if you end up hating it, thank you for showing up. Um, so I'm going to read from this book. Uh, and this is, this is a really important book for me because it represents a turn I've made in my writing. And um, maybe it's because I'm getting to be an oldie. Maybe it's just a change in aesthetics or something. But it's a turn I've taken in my own writing to move away from asking questions of self and family to asking macro versions of those questions out toward the world. Does that make any sense? And I wouldn't use the word political exactly, but it does move into the world, into territories like war and violence and bodies and how we live in that world perpetually now like in a serialized version of war (laughs) that we made for our children. Um, But before I read anything, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Is that okay with you? So at the heart of this story is a photograph. So if I ask you to think about your lives, are there any famous photographs that you can conjure that really represented a certain war or a certain kind of violence historically. Famous war photos, and furthermore, with children in them. Can you think of any? Yes. Well, could you tell me what they are? <laughs> You're like, yes, but I'm keeping it a secret. <laughs> the, the, girl and just and the napalmed girl? Yeah. Naked napalmed girl. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah, I've written about that one too. So it's a little Sudanese girl crouched down on the ground, clearly starving to death, probably her last day. And there's a vulture sitting right next to her. Kind of looks like he's waiting. Um, that is actually in this story. <laughs> that photo. Any other ones? Hmm. Um, there was one with Elvis Presley when
2: he was a soldier, and he was about to French kiss a child. So it was Elvis in profile, was his
3: Oh, how weird. <laughs> now, see, that would haunt me and mesmerize me for years. Yeah, yeah, wild. Any other ones?
4: The guy who stood in front
3: of the tank. The guy who stood in front of the tank, Tiananmen Square. The girl with the green eyes. The Afghani girl on National Geographic with the green eyes. See how you're going like this? So... Um, Those photos of children in particular from conflict or war uh, haunt me. And they always have, even when I was younger. So I'm not sure why that is, but it's true about me. And they haunted me enough that now that I can sometimes put words on pages, okay, (laughs) I decided I might be skilled enough in my life at 52 to take on a story of a girl. And I really think it took this long. I really think this was the time to write it, and not when I was 25 when I first wanted to write it. So I wanted to write a story of a girl whose picture is taken in a time of conflict by a photographer who then goes on to win a Pulitzer for the famous photo. And the photographer is American. And the girl, the war zone is kind of... Lithuania, but you could just picture Eastern Europe. And um, one other question for you. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the phrase women and children first. That was a trick question. <laughs> okay, what's it mean, smarty pantses? What's that mean? Mm-hmm. Save them first. Put the women and the children in the boats first if the boat is sinking. What else does it mean? Because they're weaker. Take care of the weaker people first. Does that mean anything else? They're the future. They're the future because this we do this. So. Right. I don't have a lot of time here. <laughs> yes. What else? Men are expendable. Men are expendable. They'll be the warrior, and then the one behind him will be the warrior. That's another kind of large statement, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. The soldier, right? Does it mean anything else? It's the name of a bookstore in Chicago. The name of a bookstore in Chicago, <laughs> possibly more than one in the world. Not sure, i have to Google it. Any other things? Women and, pardon? Men are brave. Men are brave, therefore women are what? Not brave. Helpless. Now they're helpless. Helpless. No agency. No agency. We are dependent. Dependent, some words like that. So I'm not saying these things are truth with a capital T. I'm just saying this is what gets conjured, right, from that phrase? it's always bothered me. (laughs) And it's not because I'm some hairy uber-feminist, although I am a hairy (laughs) (laughs) uber-feminist. Sorry. It's bothered me because all over the world, and including right this second, we have made the most horribly violent circumstances exist. And more women and children have survived them then soldiers have died. So there's a way in which they're the bravest people we know. And one of my questions is not should we dismiss the soldiers' glory. No, we shouldn't. I work with Fets in my teaching. That would be wrong. My question is where are the Purple Hearts for the women and children survivors? Because that is a war story too is all I'm trying to say. It's a part of the war story that doesn't get told as often. So I wrote a story about a girl who ends up saving herself in the most atrociously violent circumstances there could be. You got it? That's the plot. (laughs) It's a light story. (laughs) Harry Potter shows up at the end and goes, I panicked. It's all fine. (laughs) I'm just going to read you two excerpts. The first one is this photographer I described to you, this American award-winning photographer. And the second piece is a piece about the girl. And then I'll stop, which will be a relief. (laughs) And after that, we can do whatever you want, okay? So. It'd be really cool if I marked it, wouldn't it? (laughs) Oh, there it is. So this is the photographer in a war zone keeping a journal about what she's doing. The night is cold as fuck and the color of ash and soot. Even with all this snow, it's ironic everything is newspaper colored. The town has already been shot to shit and the soldiers look to me like jackbooted thugs from some B-rated movie, really ignorant killing machines with ill-fitting uniforms and contorted loyalties. Only their boots and rifles look lethal. Every corner of every building is shot away, making the little village look like pieces of itself, ghost structures. There's no telling rubble from real here. None of this has made the news. It's just gone on and on for years without end, the supposed end of one war giving way to the endless micro-violences of forever. Nobody even knows where I am or what I'm doing or why. Not even me. The ground stinks of blood and shit. Domesticated animals, horses, sheep, pigs, dogs, and cats wander around or stand like idiots in the paths and streets. There's a commotion up ahead. They want something, badly, and they're yanking people from homes like snatching tissues from a box. They want something or someone, and they're moving as one entity of brute force against these small families. I don't know these Baltic languages in any real sense, just bits and pieces enough to stay mobile. I'm only able to be this close because I'm dressed as a garbage man, as my interpreter and guide told me to. We've been given the duty of clearing corpses from the street. It's easy to snap shots from this distance in this grayed out light, smoke and dirt and nights falling, covering my hands and sound being swallowed up like it is, though my guide looks angry with every shot I take. He doesn't think it's worth it. A photo, he says. What are you doing, he says. He says, when we are in the cave of his house, what use is that against what's happening here? Do you know where here is? Do you even know what our story is? How long this fight? I know why you're here. You're here to catch the soldiers committing what you call atrocities, but only because you're American. You want to shame them to make a big story of their brutality. Where were you when we needed you during your so called famous Cold War? You promised nuclear tech, your threat to obliterate them. We counted on you. We gave you our very lives. And after the war, we hid in the woods, not for a day, not for a month, but for years. You offered us guns and money, and we accepted them, but you didn't attack. And so we have been left to fight alone for all these years. It doesn't matter what your nationalities are. Sometimes I think my guide wants to kill me. But he merely hands me bread and hot tea with something that helps me to sleep at night. The look he gives me is one of dismissal. I'm nothing, or less than nothing, so it costs him little help me or kill me. So we move closer and closer to the edge of this hulled-out village, its people overexposed and dead with fatigue. We pass through the rubble of some kind of town center. We pass what was once some kind of cafe or bar, its windows as black as the eyes of a corpse. We pass something like a schoolhouse, maybe, its doors boarded up like a shut mouth. We're some ways behind them and more or less part of the detritus. Soon they are at a house that's barely in the village at all, and we're able to approach mostly because of our giant horse-drawn wagon, full of rotting bodies. It seems part of the mise-en-scene. What I see next doesn't seem possible. But the first form to emerge from the house we are in front of is a girl, She looks to be about ten, maybe less. Her hair spreads in waves of nested coils around her face, down her shoulders. Unbelievably, she walks straight toward the soldiers. She's wearing the clothes of a boy, and soon a second self, her brother and her father and mother, come rushing out like blood after her. There's some yelling back and forth, and then it happens, it happens... A blast from I don't know where disintegrates the father, mother, and brother just at the edge of the girl's body, missing her in some terrifying accident of a fraction. They blow up right before her eyes, her hair lifting for a moment so that she looks as if she may float skyward, her arms up and out, her face glowing so white that her eyes look like blue steel bullets, her mouth open in the shape of an O. I remember how the ground shook. I remember the camera going off, shooting, shooting, before I fell. I remember her hands, palms white, fingers spread. The light from the explosion must have acted like like a flash, like a perfect flash. But the girl, she disappears.
2: Take a breath. (laughs)
3: One winter night when she is no longer a girl, the girl walks outside, her shoes against snow, her arms cradling herself, her back to a house not her own but some other. It's a year after the blast that has atomized her entire family in front of her eyes. She is maybe six. It is a house she has lived in with a widow woman who took her in, orphan of war, girl of nothingness. But that night that it happened has never left her, It's an unrelenting bruise, its blue-black image purling in and out of memory forever, nor will it ever leave her body because the blast forever injured her spine, a sliver of metal piercing her flesh and entering her, so that all her life she will carry the trace of that moment between her vertebrae. And then her mind moves to the moment of the blast, the singular fire lighting up the face of her father, her mother, first white, then yellow, then orange, and blue, then black, then nothing, her head swiveled by the force of the blow away from them. But it doesn't frighten her. What used to be nightmares have transformed into color and light, composition and story. It's with her now, lifelong companion, still life of a dead family. The snow begs her senses, and she wishes she had a coat. She wishes she'd tied her shoes properly, worn proper socks. The moon makes her feel lit up, Then she hears something, not her and not the night and not the white expanse waiting before her. Her feet are cold and she can suddenly feel how numb her hands are shoved in her armpits. She doesn't know what the sound is at first. First it seems like a hummingbird's wings, but that's not possible in this place. She remembers her father, his eyes, his words. Then she hears it again and then she does know what it is because she's seen it before. It's a wolf caught in a trap. She looks down near the fence line. It's a wolf beyond beautiful with its leg caught in a trap. She moves closer, aware now of how the cold is biting into her, and she studies the wolf. The wolf is smart. It's almost finished, she thinks, in only the briefest of thoughts of trying to release it. The wolf is nearly free. In its freedom, it will lose a leg. It will be worth it. She holds perfectly still, more still than a dead person, which she's seen too many times. She watches the wolf chew its own leg by the light of the moon, by the rhythm of its journey, and the moon makes its slow arc in the sky, and inside the moon's movement reflected in the girl's eyes, the wolf finally frees itself. It's then that she does something child-bodied, She goes to where the rust orange and black metal of the trap sits, holding its severed limb, to where blood and animal labor have reddened and dirtied the pristine white of the snow, like the violence against a canvas. And there, without thinking, she pulls down her pants, her underwear, squats with primal force, and pisses and pisses where the crime happened. A steam cloud moves upward from the snow and the blood as the relief of rising heat warms her skin. Her eyes close, Her mouth fills with spit. This is how the sexuality of a girl is formed, an image at a time, against white, taboo, thoughtless, corporeal. When she opens her eyes, the piss smell and the blood smell and the youth smell of her skin mingle, and she licks her lips, and the wolf runs. It runs three-legged like all damaged creatures across the snow. She thinks, this is true. She thinks... This is a life. She thinks, "I don't want to die, but my life will always be like this." Wounded an animal, lurching against white. She bends down and rubs her hands into the blood. She lifts her hands, her eyes, her heart to the heavens, in the space where they say, "God is, a God she's never known, a God she will replace with something else." And her small hands make what might look to an outsider like a prayer shape, but she's not praying. She closes her eyes, and this is the night it happens. She looks down at her red hands. She laughs up. She bends down and wrenches the severed limb from the trap, and then she runs toward a self, because what is a girl but this, this obscene and beautiful making against the expanse of white, this brilliant imagination inventing meaning? Thanks. I don't know what we do now. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was. It started with drawing. The more pictures I drew, the more I felt like I could escape the abuse of my home. Yeah. So for me personally, the, the limb, you know, it's kind of like a lucky rabbit's foot, the wolf leg, sort of, except it's bloody. <laughs> um, but for me, drawing drew me out of the house. And I didn't become a famous illustrator or a person who draws, but it was a way of storying before I had language. And I believe it saved my life. And I believe it can save other youth that are troubled in America. I believe it can save their lives as well. Mm-hmm. You inhabit the voice of this girl so beautifully. Can you tell a little bit about your process to get into her? You... Yeah. Um, I'm going to be writing about a girl the rest of my life who haunts me. I'm going to say the sad thing again. Prep yourselves. I had a daughter who died the day she was born, and I simply never got over it. I just learned to live with it, like some other people. We're kind of walking wounded. (laughs) Uh, So that is with me in every story I tell. There's this girl that haunts me, and it's been that way for 25 years. Even before that happened, there was a girl. So partly it's this haunting. And I don't think I'm the only writer or artist in the room who makes things because they're haunted by an idea or a person or an image or something, right? Yeah. Um, And then this other thing happened, which is my evil aunt. Does anyone else have an evil aunt? (laughs) My brother, my dad's sister was just not, that whole family, I don't know, went badly. (laughs) It's the Lithuanian side. After my dad died, she sent me a box of stuff. And first, I didn't want to open the box because evil aunt. Um, But I'm a writer, so I had to. (laughs) So I open it, and it's filled with photographs of my Lithuanian relatives from before Ellis Island and just people from Lithuania and a bunch of Xerox copies of redacted stories about my great-uncle who went to a Siberian prison for over 18 years for taking an illegal photograph of a Russian massacre at a Lithuanian hospital. And I don't know, I couldn't let that go. (laughs) Um, I tried not to think about it for a few years, but so the grief story of the girl and this box full of, Pieces of my history that aren't really mine, but kind of they are, kind of made a break. And then I, there was no choice. I could either go crazy or write the story. But that's how she came to be. And um, I, I always write a voice of a girl in all the books. So you only need one because it's the same story over and over again. (laughs) I just write some girl's voice. No, I'm kidding. But that's why it got deeply into me.
2: Um,
4: um, I had a question that is now I'm going to reshape it. The the way I would have said it first was something like, um, it fascinates me when an actor immerses themselves in a character. And I always wonder, well, what's it like to now go home to your life? There's such a... Need, it seems to do a character well that you actually can't escape the fact of the character in your personal life if you're in a production like a movie. And, and I was thinking, what was that like for you to move from telling the memoir, which was your life, oh, right. which was a character, to a character? Yeah. And now I'm realizing, since this girl haunts you, that it's really not a character. But I'm still curious, because I find you so delightfully... Um delightful. <laughs> <laughs> that I, I, I just <laughs> curious what words you around, um, <laughs> managing that sort of
3: grief. No, I think that's a great question, yeah. Um, after I wrote The Chronology of Water, I w- I, I, so I moved through trauma to write it. Big trauma. And some of you are writing through trauma because you told me you were. And it's hard and it takes a toll. Um, and the book I wrote after that is the one with the big Viagra pill on the cover. <laughs> And it's a farce. I wrote a character named Dora based on Freud's patient, Ida Bauer, and I gave her voice back to her. He wrote a case study about hysteria that kind of stole her voice and story from her, so I rewrote her as a goth chick in Seattle, like you would. <laughs> and it's, a far- it's literally like a classically structured farce, so I, I had to do something extremely playful to release myself from having moved through grief and trauma on the page. And it helped me let go and and, um, evolve in my art. I probably haven't evolved at all as a person. I'm as fucked up as I ever was. Um, But it helped me evolve, move to the next piece of art. And the thing that will save you if you're a writer is always the next book. So... You finish a book and you think, I did it! I made one! And then you will be haunted and insane until you start the next one. Because there's only ever the next page. And it it will be true for you if you're a writer. So art will move you forward every time. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean really, if they are. Um <laughs> <laughs> is, that, my is there a reason we didn't put like a scientist
4: or a mathematician because Oh, oh next okay. book.
3: Yeah, I get the question. It's a great question. Um, I think I write those characters because that's the world I've peopled my life with. And everyone I know, this is a line in more than one book. I've written everyone I know as an artist. It's true. So partly it's just that. But I'm also obsessed with the question, what is representation? And what is it in each historical moment? And how does it change? And we live in a funky one right now. We really do. I mean, this is another sad sentence. Are you ready? (laughs) Um, The photograph of the Syrian boy who washed up on the beach passed out of the news cycle within two days. And, you know, we were on to our lattes or whatever. It's there. But, you know, when I asked you about photos, we went to the Vietnam one faster and the Afghani girl faster, and that one I would think is in the lineage of these kind of photographs, right? That would be one that should arrest us, stop us dead, and say no more, right? Technically, and I so I'm obsessed with what is representation, when does it have meaning and make change, and when does it not, and why? Representation in capitalism. <laughs> um, that. But I will also tell you that my next two books, um, I'm rewriting Joan of Arc, and I'm rewriting Mary Shelley, and they're both scientists. I mean, in my version. (laughs) And they still hear voices, it's just not God. Um, But I am interested in the idea that the hard sciences are representation, and they do make meaning, and they do make the stories we end up living by or ignoring. Like climate change is a great one. Half the country's like, Yeah, that's a fiction. And the other half of the country is like, We're dying here. <laughs> What's your So now even science is a matter of representation for me. That's where my obsession is representation. I like your question. Are we done? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm just, I get shy when I'm up here. <laughs> if I'm reading, I'm fine, but then I get, like, really weird. Well, people are talking about the sexiness in your book, and I'm just wondering if you have a reaction to people talking about I, I am so for it and in love any time we are talking about sexuality in this country. We've yet to hit a decade where we gave it its due, where we were able to experience it, talk about it, share it, discuss it, move it into important questions as a country. It hasn't happened in my lifetime. So if I hear anybody talking about even the crappy writing or movies, if they're talking about it at all, I'm happy. And I try to move it, (laughs) amp the conversation. I think sexuality is probably one of our last undiscovered countries. I thought they would, and I did not put the sex scenes in the manuscript I sent them (laughs) on the advice of my agent, who's a great agent, and so the Harper dude's reading it, and he sends me an email, and he likes it, wants to buy it, and my husband said, you gotta send him the sex scenes. They're like, I can't. Then he won't take it, and the book won't be published. He's like, you got to send them. He's like, he's a dude. (laughs) That was his logic. Um, So I did, and he not only liked the two I sent him, he wanted more. (laughs) Um, But I was scared at first, so I'm confessing that to you, because I know I can sound like I'm like a writer, but I get scared all the time. And I was scared it would mean the work wouldn't be in the world at all, even though I knew it was right. And now I'm all proud of my, I'm all sassy, I'm all proud. <laughs> I, put, I dared to put it even in, in there even though I was chicken at first. I, I get a lot of shit for it too, though. There are some people that think I'm literally burning in hell as I speak. With the festival. Yeah. It turns out fisting isn't a popular <laughs> mainstream thing. Who knew?
5: I was just going to say that um, I, I just returned from um, a screenwriting lab. And it was really interesting this concept of this sexuality um, that, you know, when you're with screenwriters for enough days, you usually know the, that story. And almost. I would say more than 50% of the stories had something to do with sexuality or sexual abuse or something sexual. And just sort of the storytelling in order to, to kind of, um, I'm at a loss for words, but dissecting you know whatever, if it happened when someone was very young or perhaps older, just trying to put it into story form so that they could dissect the meaning. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, like, we eat, that's a pleasure, right? We don't, some people dissect that. But, you know, like, I'll just give an example. Like, this woman, it was a story that she was a scientist. It was a film that she wrote that she would figured out how to genetically clone herself so she could have an army of women and basically get
3: rid of men. <laughs> Subtle.
5: <laughs> I was kind of thinking Austin Powers, you know, like dumb bots or something. But this was like a serious movie to her. And um, so I became friends with her, and she, I said, what did you do about, you know? And, and she said, I was sexually abused when hmm. I was seven. And she goes, I'm still confused because I sort of liked it.
3: Oh right, so there's a bunch of nuances it's and like, weirdnesses. Like
5: ice cream, you know, it's like there's a, like she's still confused by that she's age you know, but she goes, it's wrong, I'm really fucked up, but um, but the problem is that I sort of liked it, I almost asked for it, and so those are not things um, we make sex pornographic, I think. Yes. They're weird. We either
3: over-sentimentalize it and render it null in this direction, or we demonize it and make it taboo and pornographic on the other end of the spectrum, and sexuality as an actual part of every moment of your life and all the different nuances and feelings you can have about it in all directions never gets the story. Yeah,
5: because you're not really allowed to talk about it. Correct. Correct. Yes. Kind of sex it
3: is. Except we have a new pact in this room that we're all going to write it and send it out and educate everyone. I think people are. Think they, are. they are. It's different. It's slightly better. And then you see, you see what representations get suck up all the oxygen and you become gloomy again. Okay. Mm-hmm.
4: Okay. Lydia, I, I wanted to say- this conversation of sexuality when you mentioned that in the class I thought do you mean sensuality which is sort of the umbrella term inside of which sexuality as you understand it shows up and I thought I remember hearing a a guy speak about when in religion sensuality and sexuality got divided Mm -hmm. and it occurred to me what a permission it is for women to go mmm I love this food but if a man ever did that across the table I'd go what? You know, and so really I see the great problem is that men, I mean, generally speaking, can't express themselves essentially the way a woman is given permission to. And so I'm just loving, and anyway, just thought I'd toss that in the room around this question of sexuality and why it's gotten so distorted in its expressions is because it's really sign sensuality
3: and who's been given permission. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question to open up to and I love that you're asking it and thinking about it. I just wish we talked about it and thought about it so much more. That's a great one. Because
4: it is pleasure. I mean, it's just pleasure.
3: Yes. In our country especially though, pleasure lives here and pain lives here except that they don't. <laughs> I mean, those are all great questions. That's a, like, stay up all night and talk about Now you're done. Are you pooped? You looked pooped. You look pooped. No, I mean all of you. You look tired. It's like reading wear out. Why? Talk about the
4: commodification
3: of art. Oh. <laughs> um, it's hard for me. That speed with which artistic expression is sucked into commodity culture is, makes me grumpy, is one way to say it. Um, and I think there's room in the world for all kinds of art, for all kinds of reasons, but that artistic expression being shut down by high capitalism, I, I will go to my grave being upset about that. But that's not to say I want to take down all the famous money-making writers and artists. That's not, that's not my jam. When it um, suppresses and oppresses artistic expression that is not bound to commodity culture and capitalism, that's a problem for me. So I don't need it to die. Well, probably I do need it to die, but in polite company, I don't need it to die It's not where I want my life energy to go. I think art should happen to you, and I think it should do something in the world besides make an individual rich. And I'm not sorry I feel that way. And I sit in a room every Monday night with some really wealthy, famous authors, so I face it every week. And I tie their shoes in knots under the table. (laughs) That's another good question that you could spend all night talking about like we used to. Well, that's the girl
2: in the, in the book and her painting, or the woman painting Yeah. And, and if nobody sees it.
3: Then does it exist? Right. If it doesn't go into the economy, does a painter exist if they never sell a work is one of the questions in the story because I know a Lithuanian woman painter who's an older woman who has no interest in showing her work in any American gallery or selling a single painting. They're all stacked up in her barn. And they're big. They're like the size of that curtain and they're good. Like beautiful. She's zero she's 80 something now. Zero interest in entering the American commodity stream. That's not why she paints. So when I say all my friends are artists, they're they're probably all lefty bastards too. (laughs) She fascinates me. Yeah, I don't know. It was meaningful for me to share it in the private space. More meaningful than going to Barnes & Noble. Um, And I remember, as a writer, I used to sell books I made of mine at Kinko's on street corners. And that was meaningful to me. Um, I don't know. I like that question being held open, though. We live in America so, you know, what are the options? But um, we were watching this shitty movie last night. Um, the movie version of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. It's got Ben Stiller in it. I'm sorry if you love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but but there was a, there's a moment in it, and this is even shittier. Sean Penn is a famous photographer, and he's photographing a snow leopard in the Himalayas. Help me, is that right? And Ben Stiller finally finds him, bumbles his way to him, and he shows him the snow leopard he's got his camera aimed at through the lens. And Ben Stiller's like, when are you going to take the picture? And Sean Penn says, sometimes I don't. And that tiny moment in that movie was... (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I liked the idea that you could hold the question open long enough to say... I just wanted the experience. It happened to me and changed my life. But, you know, even that's full of shit because if I didn't put any books in the world ever, would I feel like we were making a bridge between us? Probably not. It's complex. I don't have a good answer for that. I think it's worth struggling with, though. I think the question is worth struggling with if you want to be any kind of writer or artist. I I hope that you struggle with that question. That's my answer. I I don't really
2: have a question, but I was thinking about what you said about representation. And um, so the the Syrian child that was found. I saw that photo on Facebook, and so it was framed by other little children, American
3: children that were born and getting their new shoes, or cat pictures. Food pictures. Yep. Yep. And so, uh, I don't know that
2: representation has changed all that much historically, but the technology with which we see it, so the mode of conveyance, I think, has changed astronomically. And so, when I saw Elvis, French cuisine, and the girl, I saw it in like Life magazine. Mm-hmm. And it was so serious, and this is what we're supposed to consider, and, and there's nothing else around it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
3: I love your question, and i it's the kind of no, I mean the question you have for yourself that you're asking, and it's the kind of question I obsess on too for years so much of it. well i love I love thinking about it but I, I
2: think that's true pornography too. Maybe. The mode. You know, yeah. And now you can see anything you want, any time of day or not. Yep. Things that
3: you don't even know human beings do. Yep. <laughs> I suspected, <laughs> however.
2: <laughs> you know, I feel like there's a burden on our physical bodies because the orifices can only take so much. Yeah.
3: Yeah. There's, no, there's no reality check like, yeah, it's sort of leading, you know, which is what the physical body would do right. So again, there's this technology there I agree with you and I think about it all the time and ask questions about it One of the goals I had in this book I wrote was to present sexuality and violence to the reader in a way that they would feel something acutely in their body which is the sensation we seem to be losing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I'm not saying it succeeded. I'm saying I was chasing that idea. Like, what do I have to do on the page with language to get you to be in your body again with this representation? And I think maybe I hit a couple moments. And for me, that's big. That's like, I hit a couple moments. I'm evolving (laughs)
6: times when I thought, well, this is a part-time job trying to... (laughs) yes, it's terrible, isn't it? It is terrible, and rejection, 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 when really ultimately, you know, I want to share my work, and I have a blog, so isn't it just as easy for me to throw up my essay on the site, and whoever gets to read it, reads it. Mm -hmm. But then I still have that, like, well, I really love this. I hear you. Maybe I can get it published in the a good place and you know maybe that means something even though I I know that you know publishing isn't everything the work is everything and so but I I am stuck in that place where I don't want to feel like I've spent 25 years sending out my work with one piece published when really right now I could be sharing it with a few hundred people
3: I mean the hard truth is all the paths are open to you now you can self-publish every day of your life and that could be your thing and that is a legitimate, authentic path. And you can try to get in with Simon & Schuster or whoever and that could be your path. But they're all open to you now. And you can do both. Roxanne Gay did. Roxanne Gay made an online blogosphere, twittersphere, face hookery, <laughs> presence and began writing stories, and got noticed from the blogosphere, from the internet, um, and then moved toward more traditional publication. They're all open to you. But I have to always remind us, I know you already know this, everybody knows it, but writing is a privilege. It's a privileged thing. It's not working in a coal mine. It's not even waitressing. I mean it's a it's hard, but it's not hard compared to hard. And we have to always remind each other of that when we're feeling like, God damn it. <laughs> Which choice or how do I do this? This is hard and we have to remember that, I think. Um you know what I mean? Yeah. So I guess the good new the better way to look at it is all your options are open, woman. Right. Get to it. What are you waiting for? Or something like that. <laughs>
6: Right? Yeah. It's true. Well, it sounds like you also said you sold your work on the street corner. Totally, and
3: (laughs) that could happen again. (laughs) Because this this was like the least scary thing (laughs) I had in the hopper. So. (laughs) (laughs) And it could happen again, and I'd be. I mean, maybe I'm lying to myself, but I think I'd be okay with it. I love like rebel renegade art. I always will. And I could go back to it tomorrow. I don't know what my son's going to eat, but I I still love that impulse, and my heart is there still. Which is why um, when something good happens to me, I try to get 50 people through the door who think they can't. And I like this group submission idea. (laughs) Or 40 of us submit on the same day to like the New Yorker (laughs) with the same subject line. That's another form of returning to the rebel mode.
5: Mm-hmm. And when you said that you had to write those things, it's because um, what you're doing is you're, you're um, having the effect of creating empathy.
3: Ah, yes, that ties in with your quote. One of the things we're losing is I mean, the skill of empathy.
5: Abuse in its definition is a lack of empathy. Yes. And so you know, if, yes. We have to create, if we have to, through writing and film, evoke images to startle, so that the collective consciousness is um, reawakened yeah. to how we're supposed to feel. Yes. Um, then so be it, you need to do that. And I think I'm appreciating what you're asking, you know, whether you are a waitress or a writer or whatever. I was trying to give tips, you know. It's like, uh-huh. you know, feed your family. Um, but that isn't, really, that isn't really the goal. The goal is transparency. And, you know, I didn't really know who you were, you know. And I didn't know me either. <laughs> I didn't know who Neil Gaiman was, and he wrote to me, you know, just because my daughter liked him or whatever, you know. And what I realized is, it's the transparency that the reader feels and the authenticity. Oh. And the big publishing houses or the big uh, film studios, you know, that that's going with the Kardashian.
3: Uh, Do not say that word to me ever again. <laughs> <laughs>
5: But what I'm trying to, to say, being more on the other side of it, mm-hmm. is that um, your, your thing is working right now because you're at a, a place in history where we need to wake up. And so, you know, it just came to you naturally from your life and what happened to you, you know. And so... I think it's always intent. Whatever your story is, and and as you don't, you know, as you take the high road, which doesn't have very much traffic, um, and you be and you be true to yourself, whatever your story is. I don't care if it's a children's story, but you be true to your story and don't worry about who likes it. You know, um, it's going to speak to something, and slowly, that's why the independent film is, is grown so much. You mm-hmm. know, because what we're doing is we're trying to affect a change in our world. Mm-hmm. And 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 actually, good does sell, whether it's like blatant sexual images or... I know what or, you mean. You I know
3: exactly that. what I mean.
5: And, and to me, I think that's sort of the key. You know, it's sort of like, you know, what's your intent? hmm mm-hmm. These
3: because are such... Cl-
5: commercial and somebody will buy it. Apparently. Apparently. <laughs>
3: But the, I mean these are you're also intelligent and, and passionate. These are great questions and conversations. It's um, sort of a pleasure to sit in a room with you and hear what goes on in your brains. It's, it's very um I'm a really cynical person, but it's sort of hopeful to listen to all of you and the kinds of questions you have.
0: Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.